0: The truth is, I don't always believe it. I often feel like I have to clean myself up before I come to you. Or I have to make sure my words are, are, are carefully chosen and, and, and done a certain way in order to be acceptable to you. But the truth is, as, you, as we just sang, you told us to come be still. Come as we are, just as we are. Knowing that you are the God who heals You're the God who cleans us up. That is something we are incapable of doing on our own. The fact that you sent your own son to forgive us is proof that you will do whatever it takes to bring us into relationship with yourself. And then once we know you, to change us, to liberate us, to lead us, to become people of love like you, Jesus. And so, God, I pray that as we open your word today... God, that we would have open hearts, open minds, ready to receive whatever it is that you want to say. God, I pray that if there's anything in this that's my ideas, God, I pray that 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 just even stops before it comes out of my mouth. But instead that your words might be proclaimed and heard, because that is the power of transformation. Thank you for what you're doing in and through us, individually and together as your church. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it's a privilege, uh, as always, to be able to open up God's Word um, and, uh, and, and bring it to life for our own lives and contexts. A, a Pure Love is the name of the sermon series uh, that we're going through during this month of love, uh, February. If you were here last week uh, or you listened online, you know that the whole focus of a pure love series is on sexuality and god's design for it if you were not here last week and you didn't know that surprise (laughs) you know i heard some people say after last week like you know like talking about sex like like that only is like a certain demographic of people that actually relates to but don't worry this week i'm gonna offend everybody so we don't have to worry about any of that um but all serious all right Maybe just a little. Um, But jumping into this week, let me just give a quick synopsis of what we talked about last week. You know, we talked about how, yeah, we get it, right? The whole topic of sex is uncomfortable. Uh, We don't really want to talk about it. But what is the cost of not talking about it? Our silence only continues to cause the pain, the confusion, the shame that is all in this topic. That only makes that worse. Plus the fact that God's Word talks about it. And if we try to ignore it, then we're in practice ignoring a part of what God has told us to focus on. And so it's vital that we talk about it. Last week I quoted Howard Hendricks, who's a a Christian leader, who said, we can't be ashamed to talk about what God was not ashamed to create. That there is something in this, that, that, that we are created as sexual beings. But not just to procreate. In addition to being sexual beings, we have this this longing, this desire for relationships. To to actually connect with somebody. To to have a relationship where we can be fully known and yet truly loved. It's in our DNA. Even the most self-sufficient people crave relationships. And if they don't, oftentimes it's because something has Cause some sort of trauma in their past. But at the core of who we are as human beings, we're made to connect. But we talked about last week how one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that God allows us as human beings to experience that fully known, yet truly loved experience is through sex. But we talked about, ultimately, that sex is a powerful gift from God. But... Uh, in Proverbs 6, it compared that gift to a fire. And we understand that anything powerful can either cause a lot of good or a lot of damage. That fire itself is something that within proper limits can be enjoyed. But when you start to take matches and light them and fling them around your house, guess what? Something's getting burned. And the reason why God has said, hey, the limits of... I want sex to be within, to come after the vows of marriage. It's not because he's a fuddy-duddy, he's a prude, or he's trying to ruin our fun. Ultimately, he has these limits because just like fire, he says, I want you to enjoy it as the gift it's meant to be. I'm not, and the reason why we're talking about this subject is not just because we're trying to just get everybody to avoid all the bad stuff. We're talking about the subject because we want to chase after God's best. And who it is that he's actually made us to be. Amen? Amen. Sometimes I say that just to make sure you're out there. But we know that like fire, when disordered lust starts running our lives, it begins to burn us. When we start viewing other human beings as objects for our own pleasure, it sears and hardens our own conscience. When we give ourselves fully to someone, but there is physically but yet there is no life commitment that comes with it oftentimes it ends up scorching our own sense of self-worth god gave us fire as a gift in order that we might enjoy it as the gift that it is so that's last week that's last week (laughs) sorry it's all just laughs of discomfort up here but the central question that we're asking today The one we're going at today, right at today, is how does God meet us in the midst of our sexual brokenness? Who is God in the midst of our own brokenness? Now, let me clarify. I know oftentimes when we think of sexual brokenness, we think of things like an affair, a pornography addiction. We think of someone who uh, is the victim of some sort of sexual abuse. Not their fault, but something done to them. Like, these are painfully real. But when I say sexual brokenness, I'm not just referring to those those examples. But I'm referring to anything and everything that hinders or warps God's good design for sexuality. I'm talking about, again, I'm not talking about just avoiding the bad stuff, but how do we walk towards God's good thing? When I'm talking about sexual brokenness, yes, I'm talking about the affair. But we're also talking about in the marriage relationships, where there might be a spouse who is withholding sex from their spouse simply to punish him or her. That's part of it. We're not just talking about what we do with our bodies, but Jesus added in Matthew 5. He says, "If you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's not just what we do physically, but it's what we do with our mind as well. It's what we dwell on, what we think on. And with that one statement, didn't you just feel that? Jesus just leveled the playing field. Because now sexual brokenness isn't just something that like a few people deal with. We all in some sense carry brokenness in our lives. We all have areas that God wants to address and sink deep down and show us who he is. So the reason why we level the playing field, like I said, is who is he? How does he meet us in the midst of that? And we have to ask this question because there are so many misconceptions of who God is with that one question. That have only enhanced the pain, the shame, the guilt, the isolation. But we're going to go at it today. And let's start. We're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 7. If you you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. If you don't, no worries. we got it on the screen. You can just follow with us. Um, But Luke chapter 7. Luke's in the New Testament. Comes after Matthew and Mark and before John. Luke 7, verse 36. And now, before we reread this, can I just say something? I believe God's going to change some lives today. I believe that when we open His Word, it's ultimately for liberation. It's for healing. It's for hope. And I need you guys to believe that with me. All right? But if you don't, I'm going to believe it anyway. Because what we see in this this passage is that Jesus is not afraid to break down and challenge any social conventions he has to in order to ultimately show who he is. And I'm praying that he does. He breaks down whatever he needs to in our own lives to show us who he really is. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. Before we read, can you just say these words after me? Say, God, open my heart, open my mind, transform my life. Amen. Luke 7, 36. Follow with me. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume as she stood behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears then she wiped them with her hair kissed them and poured perfume on them when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner and Jesus answered him Simon I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. He said, Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, which is about a, a day's wage, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will, he, will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in what? Peace. Everybody say peace. So Luke set the scene forth from the beginning. If we go back to the beginning of this whole story, there's a nice little dinner party going on in this Pharisee's house. And in, in mi- typical Middle Eastern fashion, what we would have expected is you got Jesus, the host, several distinguished guests reclining around this U-tape shable, uh, chowing on some figs or some hummus or whatever it is that they were eating at that time. And then out of nowhere comes this woman of the city, a sinner, crashes the party. To say that it's surprising is quite the understatement. But before we actually dig into the story itself, I want to say, who is this woman? Where did she come from? Like, what's the deal here? She has this lavish, seemingly like nutty thing that she does. But my question is, why? Where did she come from before this that would motivate such a lavish love later? And what can we learn about brokenness in the midst of that? I'm going to make a point, and then I'm going to back that up. Here it is. Lust and shame are tyrants who want to convince us there's no way out. Lust and shame are tyrants who want to convince us there's no way out. Back to the story. This woman... She's not given a name, but, but you better believe she has a reputation. If Luke could write it today, he'd said this woman who lives a sinful life, if you know what I mean. <laughs> She's that woman who made her living off of other women's husbands, travelers coming through, even worse, the Gentiles, Roman soldiers possibly in their own town. She's that woman. Clearly a prostitute by trade. And Luke doesn't reveal her name because he's implying that in that particular culture, she's not even worthy of one. She's an object to be used for other people's pleasure. She's she's barely above the status of animal. The religious leaders in the day because in that day and age like, to be a part of the religious life was, was equally in, intermeshed with the social life. A little different from our society but equally intermeshed. And because she was ritually impure she was never really allowed to be a part of the religious life therefore not allowed to be a part of the social life. The religious leaders of the day treated her like she had coronavirus. Like, like you're a contagion. We get away from you. And so here she is. But I And thinking through this story, I I couldn't help but stop and say, how is it that any woman in that day and age ends up a prostitute? Ends up an object? I, I guarantee she never dreamed of this. But given the social realities of her day, there's a good chance, it's likely, that she came from a very impoverished family, and her parents, in order to survive, may have sold her into slavery early on. Until maybe eventually she could get her own freedom. But even at that point, no man wants her. Or perhaps she came from a background where you know, she lost her virginity. Whether it was by choice or not. And now no ma- she's tainted goods in that society. So no man wants her. And if you're a woman in that society with no education, no land, no power, no family. Good luck. You don't have much chance of survival. You just got to do what you got to do. And so here's this woman. No family to claim her. Society doesn't want her. No land, no power, no education. She was a nothing. She was simply left begging for men. And the reason why I lay that out is because in many ways, she is an illustration of where lust and shame want to lead every single one of us. To a place of being totally trapped. Lust in general. Lust is that force that that will continue hounding until it's finally trapped its object. Lust is only interested in taking, not giving. Lust will pursue whatever gives it pleasure. But problem is, it's never really satisfied. It's like Pringles. Once you pop, you can't stop. And as it hounds and as it pursues, how does it ultimately capture? Because everywhere that lust goes, it leads shame, leaves shame in its wake. And lust and shame work together like bait and switch, enticing and capturing us until we are convinced that there's no way out. Lust leads us in, tells us it's good. And then shame comes in like that voice afterwards saying, what'd you do? Don't you know? If anybody really knew what you just did, they will no longer respect you. They might judge you. They're certainly going to stop loving you. And so ultimately shame leads us toward isolation. But now that we're in isolation, we're like, you know what, I'm never going to do it again. Whatever it is, I'm not going to do it again. And we say, I'm going to beat this thing without anybody having to know. And so we white knuckle it and we try to make it happen until finally our self-control is exhausted and that's the very moment that old familiar voice comes back in and says, you could have relief, you know. One glance. Just click on that website. Just one rendezvous in the shadows. No big deal. You could have relief. And so we see how this cycle starts, don't you? How one leads to the next and how the other leads to the next. Because here's the thing. <laughs> no one, we get it. As far as there is an enemy warring against our soul, Scripture tells us. His name is Satan. And he works in two main ways. He deceives and he accuses. He deceives. No one is for do whatever you want sexually more than God's enemy. No one. But the crazy thing is, no one is for God's good design for marriage, for sexuality, except Satan, after you've already done that previous thing. He entices you in with the deception. And then once you've done it, it's like, oh, buddy, now you've done it. And so now, much like Proverbs 5 describes, For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter. Sharp as a two-edged sword. I imagine it's very similar to that, 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 that dictator. That wannabe dictator. The man or woman who comes to power, and they promise, they appeal to all the good and just desires in the hearts of the people. And then when they finally gain power, now they use that power to now pull the freedom from the people. It's the same thing. Entice, and then trap. But the thing is, the crazy thing is, lust and shame, sexual sin in general, is never content with just us, is it? It always wants to go and eventually involve other people. It has to expand its territory. This case in point, let's say there's a husband who is addicted to porn. He doesn't like it, but but man, it's been a struggle for a long time. His wife now feels like, man, do I not measure up? And as he continues, this addiction continues to get inside of him, and that lust continues to grow. Now his teenage daughter is older, and he starts distancing himself from her because now he's afraid of where his lust might take him. And she's wondering the whole time, why is daddy distant? Where is he? And then she starts going elsewhere, looking for somebody else to meet that need that she never even got in her dad. Do you see that? It spreads. Or let's talk about the ways... And there are many people in there are many people, perhaps even in here, who come from sexual abuse, trauma, or someone else's lust caused your shame. And that is a very real reality that I could sit here and quote stats all day long on the reality of that. How, how, how one in ten kids have experienced these sorts of things from various ages, right? But, like, I didn't have time to do all the homework on how true those things were. But the more that I study it, the more I realize, my goodness, this is everywhere. And anytime somebody has been abused and they're left with that sense of shame, there is this compounding lie that said, that was your fault think mean, that happened, that's ultimately on you. And there, even though it wasn't even an act by you, you see the way shame grips. And as I've sat with people and heard their stories, those coming from sexual brokenness, from trauma, from abuse... And it just breaks my heart to hear the ways that they're not sure. Like, can I have a relationship again? Will I ever be whole again? Like, I, I just feel like the shame won't leave me. To where we get to the point where sexual sin, whether done to us or whether done by us, is this tyrant working to convince us that pure, unconditional love doesn't exist for you, and you are ultimately beyond repair. But folks, as people of the truth... As people carrying the very reality of God, we can 't just simply pretend like this stuff 's not here we 've got to call it out as the lie that it is. There is no person here beyond the saving, redeeming, healing power of Jesus and I want to make sure that 's loud and clear. I know i 'm shouting here, but it 's because I like, I like I just I have to call it what it is, and it makes me angry that that lie is is Still wrecking people. It grieves the heart of God. But can we heal? Can we move beyond that? (laughs) You better believe it. And we'll get there. We'll get there. But first, before we move, just move on. This story has another key figure in it has this man, Is this Pharisee named Simon. Why is he even in this story? Isn't it good enough to just have the story of the woman and how Jesus meets her and heals her? Isn't that good enough? But Luke chose to include the story of this man, Simon, as well in it. Why? What is it that he wants us to see? That ultimately we see in the woman the way that lust and shame want to capture. But we see in this man... This is also this force called pride that deceives me into believing that you need help, but, but I don't. Yeah, yeah, he, he died for you, but you know what, I'm good. That is the ultimate force of pride. All right, let's meet Simon. This is, this is not Simon Peter, the disciple. This is Simon the Pharisee, which we don't see a lot of him. This is one of the only times he even shows up in the Bible. But he's having this little dinner party. And we don't really get his name at first. We just know him as the Pharisee. Now, in church, Pharisees get a bad rap. For good reason. Right? They're kind of jerks. But in, at least in this situation, what we see about Pharisees, this group of people, was their ultimate cause, you can see, like, was kind of noble. Right? Like, they were really concerned about the ritual and cultural purity of their nation. They, they fought for good moral causes. Things that we would probably even applaud. But they saw themselves as the true champions of God's way. God's way. (laughs) But the irony in this story is who is the one who shows God's way? Not the Pharisee, but the sinful woman. Who is it that ultimately gets it? Not the devout man. But ultimately, the sinner, quote unquote, gets it. How? How is that possible? Well, it begins by understanding that it's very easy, it's very possible for us to develop a religious system that instead of heightening our view of God, can only boost our own ego. How many of you guys know that's true? (laughs) It's very possible that religion can serve to boost pride instead of making us like God. This means for Simon, his whole religion depended on him saying, you know what, I check all of these right moral boxes. He was the guy who was at church every time it was open. He memorized Bible verses. I think he even taught Bible classes. Check, 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 check. And these things were the reason why he now felt that he had a leg up On other people. But I have to ask. Does our faith ultimately make us more aware of our need for God? Or does it make us more, I don't know, content with who we really are? Does our faith make us more like God? Or does it make us look around and wonder why people aren't more like me? Does my faith, my religion, if you will... Cause me to see people in the way that God sees them? Or does it make me look around and wonder who's looking at me? And who respects me? Who honors me? Because we see that ultimately Simon had his whole religion, if you will, boosted his own view of himself. It set up a category that he was here and other people were here. And so when this sinner walks into the room, does he see a human being made in the image of God or does he just see a sinner? He saw a sinner. That's all she was to him, was just a sinner. And she, she was also someone who could, really, who could make him impure. And even though she came in weeping over Jesus, he's not seeing that. He's not seeing that whole, whole, the heart poured out there. All he sees is her hair is down. And in that culture, you have your hair down as a woman, you might as well be walking around topless. It carried that kind of disgrace. And what, what is she doing all over his feet? Knowing who she is, this must be some sort of erotic act. And he doesn't just judge her. Now he's judging Jesus. He's like, it... What kind of man of God is this? That he would allow this thing to touch his feet in this way. How can he even be called a man of God? But you know what I love about Jesus? Oh man. This this broke it open for me. This really got me going. When I realized Jesus' love wasn't just there to reach the sinful woman. His love was also there to reach the proud man. Because right after that, verse 40, he says, Simon, Simon's no longer just a Pharisee. He's a person. He's no longer a stereotype. Jesus sees who he is. He says, Simon, can I tell you something? In other words, can I reframe this whole situation here for you? Can I show you what God really wants to do in and through you right now? He says, let me tell you a little story. He says, there's there's a money lender. Got a lot of money. He loans, let's say, five grand to one guy and fifty bucks to another guy. He realizes that both of them can't truly pay the sum back. And so he just wipes the slate clean. He forgives. And then Jesus, a cool story Jesus, but his question afterwards is the thing that I really want us to see. Because he says at the end of that, who would love me more? See, in Simon's whole religiosity, do-gooderism, that's a real word, like all that, love wasn't even really a concept. It was all about what you could do. How many boxes you could check. How much you could achieve. How, 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 much, how good of a reputation you could gain. There was no sense of love. And Jesus said right then and there, he reframes it all. He says, I'm not asking who can perform the most rituals here. I'm saying, Who loves more? And then just to to drive it home a little bit more, he now turns from looking at Simon, the story says. And now, even though he's still talking to Simon, he goes and he looks at the woman. He looks her. I I can imagine this woman who's just been so rejected, looked down upon for years, he now looks her in the eyes. He's still talking to Simon. And he said, Simon, this woman... With the poor reputation. This woman of brokenness. This woman of shame. She got it. You. The man with a stellar reputation. The, the, the position in your church. You missed it, bud. He says, From the moment I came in. He says, You did not give me any water to wash my feet. She washed my feet with her tears and her hair. Simon. For the moment I came in, you did not greet me with that customary Middle Eastern kiss of greeting. But she can't stop kissing my feet. Simon, you did not give me that oil, the olive oil on my head that that, that you're supposed to give an honored guest. But she, she poured out her prized possession, her perfume all over my feet. Do you see it? Who loved Simon? Who really loved here? When that woman broke that perfume all over his feet, that perfume was what she used to entice men before, and now she's basically breaking her old lifestyle right at the feet of Jesus. Who loved more? We can do so much in the name of God, we can do so much for God, but in the end, what God really cares about is who loves him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And those who are willing to recognize how much they've been forgiven, he said, those are the ones whose hearts are most open to loving me. And what's so interesting about this story, though, is you never see how Simon responds. Luke doesn't tell us why. I think that's ultimately for us. I believe he leaves this open-ended because he is now leaving this tension sitting at the feet of his own readers saying, what would you do? i tell you what I, it's very easy to do. It's very easy to just get offended at Jesus. Who does he think he is? To try to say, whoa, well, well, gosh, like, you saw what she did and justify and spin the story however you want to take the attention off your own heart. It's very easy to just say, "Well, okay, that's nice," and walk away and get busy and try to forget about it. It's easy to do all those things. What's hard is stopping and saying, "You're right." My heart has been hard. It's been cracked. It's judgmental. It's prideful. It's selfish. It's I seek my own glory instead of the glory of God. You're right. And I'm turning from that. But the amazing thing is that whether each of us relate more with a woman who felt too broken to be healed. Or whether we relate more with the Pharisee Simon who felt like he was too whole and he didn't need to be repaired. It doesn't matter which direction we come from, whether you come from both. Jesus meets both in the same way, doesn't he? He meets both in the same way, and ultimately he wants to meet us in the same way. Jesus wants to meet us in our brokenness to make us whole. That's your amen moment right there. Do we believe this? This woman trapped in lust and shame, she met God, and she experienced what love, joy, peace that only he can truly give. And we see from this story, and it goes to show if you, if you read the rest of the Gospels, it's just who Jesus consistently is. That Jesus never came to pat the to put together people on the back. He came for the sick. He came for those who were willing to see their own need. That this woman's nutty, self-abandoned, seemingly crazy love for Jesus is all just a natural outflow because the grace of God had now reached the deepest places of her heart and soul and there's nothing better. I want to get to that place in my own life. I don't know about you where I, like, God's love and his grace are so real to me that I don't care what anybody else thinks anymore. That once I'm not caring what anybody else thinks anymore, now I'm free to go and actually be an extension of healing for them. When I'm aware of my own brokenness, now I can say, hey, how can I enter this with you to show you the the hope that I have that no matter what shame you've carried or what hardness of heart may have characterized your past, Jesus wants to meet us right where we are. Truth is, we've all in some way, lust has caused us to disregard the dignity of another human being. But when we do that, when we seek to capture or control or treat someone else as an object instead of someone made in the image of God, we're not just harming or sinning them. Guess what? We're also sinning against God. Because he's the one who gave them the dignity in the first place. When David sinned with Bathsheba in the Old Testament, he even confessed to God. He says, against you have I sinned. And truth is, when we sin against God, it deserves punishment. But the amazing news is that despite what was just, Jesus, the only perfectly pure human being, he came and became that sacrifice in our place. He took that punishment on the cross. Why? Because his mission, he said, only a couple chapters earlier, was to proclaim the good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. My concern, though, is that we are sitting in a prison and we don't even know we're in it. Are we willing to first recognize the ways that we are broken to be able to see our own need for Jesus? And then once we see him through the eyes of faith, he says, you may be healed, forgiven, set free. I love how the story ends. Because this woman who has just been disregarded as less than all of her life, now Jesus, it seems like a ceremony even. With these distinguished, shocked-faced guests still sitting around, laying around this U-tape shable, just like, what in the world's going on, Jesus looks at her and he announces, as the Son of God, "Your sins are forgiven." And this is no trite statement, because in that society, that culture, when your sins are forgiven, when you are declared pure before God, what does that mean? Now you can enter into the social life. The religious life. You can worship at the temple. You have new life again. God wants to meet us with that same restoring love. But you know, I feel as if before I continue, I I need to apologize on behalf of just the church and Christians in general, myself included. For the times and the ways we've acted more like Simon than Jesus. As a church, the church, whether this one or others, Christians in general, those who have come in, maybe from a divorced background, have at times been treated like second class citizens. Or someone comes in sincerely seeking God, but yet they come from just a, a casual sex background. And we somewhat judge them instead of wanting to develop a relationship with them, come alongside them. The church as a whole has done a pretty terrible job over the past couple decades of loving our gay and our lesbian neighbors as well. Listen. As a church, we believe that when you're married, yeah, God intends that to be for life. We believe that, yeah, sex is something that's to be held within the marriage covenant. We believe that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. We believe that. But our own doctrinal stances have been used as a weapon to not love instead of meeting people exactly how our Lord would meet them. I want to learn... I want to learn how to love well, don't you? Next week, we have a speaker coming in. His name is Bill Henson. And this guy has a tremendous love for Jesus, the church, and the LGBT plus community. And he started an organization called Lead Them Home a number of years ago that travels across the U.S. and even Canada Talking to churches about how we can better love and serve the LGBT community in the love of Jesus. He's an evangelical Christian, but he's coming saying, "Let's. how do we meet them exactly as Jesus met this woman? How? And so I encourage you to come next week. But I understand there are a lot of people in here too who, man, you're coming out of a lot of sexual trauma or abuse or brokenness. And you're like, I don't know what to do or where to go to receive any sort of healing. I believe that church, what we... In what I've read and understood, in sexual abuse, in order to heal, restorative relationships are extremely important as a part of the healing process. I believe this church can be that kind of place where we can develop restorative relationships. Where people can come and be honest without fear of judgment, knowing that they're going to be loved. And that might be in a small group. That might be in a mentoring relationship. But I want you to let let you know, too, we kept this somewhat confidential, um, but I feel like this is very important to say anyway. We do have a men's support group that meets weekly that I would if, if you're struggling with any of the issues we talked about, come see me or email me and I'd be happy to point you in the direction. If and we also have a leader waiting to start a women's support group and if you have any desire to be a part of that. Uh, you can come see me, or you can go see our interim women's director, Teresa Larkin, if you'll raise your hand in the back. And we'll be happy to point you in that direction as well, because we want you to have those kind of resources that you need to be able to grow. If that makes you nervous, I also want to let you, on the hospitality desk, I have placed a thick packet of a bunch of recommended Christian counselors in our area that you can go seek and pursue. Just grab one of those packets on the way out, and if we don't have enough, find somebody, and we'll make copies for you. But ultimately, my point is, what I hope you hear is that if we don't have the resources, we want to find them. Because we want to be the kind of place where where people can come, meet the love of God, and experience His healing in their lives if that is, in fact, what their heart wants. Why? Because that's who our God is. And as we see our own need for Jesus, then we become that community of love. As his grace reverberates within the cracks of our own hearts, we can't help but to then give out, echo his pure love. I think, I know that what we want to be is that kind of community. A place where people from anywhere, anyone who is seeking God may find him and find healing. I believe that's exactly the kind of community you want to be. But you know what? Before we can start giving out that kind of love, we first have to be willing to let God come and work in our own areas of brokenness. We worship a God who entered into our suffering, into our reality, in order to lead us out. And if we are going to ultimately help other people find freedom, guess what? We have to be aware of our own brokenness and be able to walk out. And as we are willing to come honestly, openly before our God, not in shame, calling the lie a lie, and saying, no, He loves me. And then through process, working through that brokenness, the trauma, what, all the things that have happened to us, then we learn what it means to now give out that love to the world. Amen. And as we allow God's grace to reverberate within the cracks of our own hearts, We can't help but echo his pure love. Everybody stand with me. I want to let you know that no matter where you're coming from, whatever you might be battling with, as the worship team comes on up, there's going to be prayer partners here after the service is done. Don't feel like you got to run. We don't have another service after this, so stay. Get prayer. Have somebody minister to you. Have somebody take some time to pray with you and talk with you about anything that you might be dealing with. But for now, I want to just let this sink in, take hold, respond however you feel led to respond. But let's just trust God with our hearts. You pray with me. God, speak to my heart. Show me. What you want me to see. Help me receive that grace. That doesn't always make sense. But is real. Thank you for your love. In Jesus name. Amen.